I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. In 1959, a guidance counselor at the recently integrated Coolidge High School in the nation's capital advised a black student to lower his sights in the college admissions process, to apply only to schools less competitive than those for which his grades and SAT scores indicated he was qualified. For the past 58 years, Hugh Price has been proving that counselor wrong. He first attended Amherst College and Yale Law School, then he worked in a variety of roles in local government and community development, eventually joining the editorial board of the New York Times. From 1994 to 2003, he served as president of the National Urban League, where he launched a national campaign to raise the academic achievement of black youth. The author of four books on education reform, he's out now with a new memoir, This African American Life, in which he tells his own remarkable story. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Hugh Price. You can find an excerpt from his memoir on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Hugh Price, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, Hugh, you open your memoir not with the guidance counselor at Coolidge, but with a staffer in the federal government who offered you very similar advice in the context of an internship the previous summer. I wonder if you might begin by sharing that story and explaining why you gave it such prominence in telling your story. It's in the summer of, uh, wow, hard to remember, it's 1958 when I was a, the summer between junior and senior years in high school, I was selected for a prestigious internship for students who are very strong in math and science. And we worked for a U.S. Defense Department subcontractor by the name of the Operations Research Office. And during the course of the summer, they took it upon themselves to give us tests in order to help project what our potential was. And I recall going in for the debrief and being told that I probably would get to go to college, but that I should not count on going to graduate school or professional school. And that assessment really rattled my cage because I had been a very strong student, um, had a lot of confidence in my academic ability, and it set my, set my sights uh, quite high on the, some of the best colleges in the country. And it just uh, sent a signal to me about what um, I came to call uh, institutional racism, where basically there are forces at work uh, where people are essentially trying to keep you from reaching your fullest potential. And sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert or subtle. Um, fortunately, my parents uh, uh, told me not to pay any attention to uh, that assessment and to keep on uh, excelling in school, and, and that's what I did. But it was, uh, it, as I say, it was quite an experience. Uh, I guess we'd call it a bummer these days uh, to have when you're 16 years old and you think that uh, you're swimming along well in school. Um, and the interesting thing is I've had a number of encounters with uh, uh, friends in the African-American community over the years, and some fairly recently who've had roughly similar experiences in their own lives or their lives of their children. So it was just a signal to me to set my radar for any such instances where people were trying to keep me uh, from my fullest potential. And uh, more importantly, it really charted the course for much of my professional career where um, I set about trying to help people who had been uh, 
as I call, misunderestimated, uh, reach their fullest potential. And you start the narrative of your own story by describing your early years in Washington, D.C., at a time when racial discrimination wasn't hidden. It was, in fact, blatant. Your elementary school was all black. Uh, the Washington senators wouldn't even hire a uh, African-American ball player. Yet you write of that time, what a blessed upbringing. What made it special or allowed it to be special in the midst of this pervasive discrimination? Well, segregation wasn't just blatant. It was uh, legally sanctioned by uh, the government. And uh, it wasn't until the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 that it was declared unconstitutional and the schools were integrated. Uh, but I grew up in the orbit of Howard University, and um, my parents were all uh, Howard graduates. And the ethos there was not to let obstacles that are placed in your way become uh, uh, permanent and don't don't internalize those obstacles, but instead try to surmount them, uh, circumnavigate them, crawl underneath them. But basically, you know, if you had the goods uh, to go forth and try to achieve. Um, I was fortunate to have uh, an intact family um, and to live in a neighborhood with uh, very close friends and to belong to organizations like the Jack and Jill, which was an African-American um, organization for families with uh, children. Uh, a couple of my buddies and uh, my uh, Jack and Jill chapter went on to remarkable achievements. One became the first four-star admiral in the history of the United States, and another became an astronaut. So we, we knew which end was up, uh, and our parents and their friends all uh, supported us in um, striving for it. And integration, I mean, segregation was obviously a severe obstacle to be surmounted, but it wasn't, you weren't, you weren't supposed to internalize any sense of um, that you're a lesser person with lesser possibilities. You just had to strive to overcome those obstacles. Now, you've had an incredible career. I listed some of your professional accomplishments in introducing you at the start of the show, but of all of those accomplishments, you're probably best known for your time at the helm of the National Urban League. Many listeners will know that organization, but for those who don't, what is it and why was its presidency attractive to you? Well, the organization was founded in 1910 and essentially was created to help African Americans who are making the journey from the South as part of the Great Migration into cities in the North, the Midwest, and the West uh, to um, complete their journey into the mainstream to overcome obstacles of housing discrimination and employment discrimination. And um, there are Urban League affiliates all over the country. There are close to 100 of them, and it's uh, quite a, quite an extraordinary organization that's only had eight CEOs in its entire about 107-year history, which is uh, remarkable. Um, it is one of the major organizations in the African-American experience, uh, one of the storied organizations. Um, and the previous CEOs were luminaries like Whitney Young, Vernon Jordan, uh, John Jacob. And so the opportunity to uh, sit um, spiritually and figuratively at their desks and to lead an organization that has been so important to the African-American community and to America was irresistible. I came of age professionally with folks like the former CEOs of the National Urban League as my role models and professional heroes. So the opportunity to serve in that capacity was, was irresistible. And when the 
question was popped about whether or not I'd be willing to do it, it took me all of about 30 seconds to say yes. It's nice when you have an easy decision to make. Uh, so you entered the organization as its seventh CEO and didn't take much time to make a splash. In your inaugural speech as president of the league in July 1994, you laid out your vision for the organization and highlighted the role of economic forces beyond racism as an obstacle to black progress. The headline in the Sunday New York Times about your speech read, a rights leader minimizes racism as a poverty factor. Was that the message you had wanted to send with the speech? Well, I didn't want to send the, transmit the notion of minimizing. I was basically trying to say that there are very large forces at work, that racism is still very much with us, but we also needed to understand some of the macroeconomic trends that are affecting our community as well as everyone else in the United States, as we are discovering to this day. And the basic point was that cities, particularly where the Urban League affiliates were based, had been hemorrhaging jobs as factories closed down or moved to the south or as technology impacted those jobs, and, and basically the lost jobs were not being replaced by new livelihoods that uh, enabled people to strive for middle-class existence. And so we needed to understand not only um, the effects of racism, but we also needed to understand the effects of macroeconomic trends. Um, and I don't want to say I was prescient, and I certainly didn't originate that idea, but certainly in 2017, we've seen that play out uh, uh, not just within the African-American community, but within um, the entire um, middle class and working classes of this country. So that was the basic point. Um, I was thrilled by the placement of the article on the front page, and, you know, I didn't want to grouse about the headline. I didn't have any control over that anyway, but I, I was thrilled with the coverage. When your speech didn't just offer a diagnosis, it pushed in the direction of a prescription as well by outlining a new agenda for the Urban League as an organization. And that agenda started really with strengthening education and focusing on helping inner city children develop the academic and social skills they need to be successful. You write in your memoir that you sought to position the Urban League as the go-to organization of the black community on public education. And you launched something called the Campaign for African-American Achievement. Why did your analysis of the macroeconomic forces that were underway as you took over the organization lead you to prioritize the cause of education reform? Well, the whole mission of the Urban League throughout its history has been to enable and empower African Americans and others that we serve uh, to enter the economic and social mainstream of America. And you simply, certainly by the uh, mid-1990s and before, and certainly subsequently, you can't get from here to there without going through education. Um, young people absolutely need the, the academic and social skills that are required in order to be successful in the labor force, and that includes the traditional three R's, as well as tech technological literacy, but it also includes such skills as um, uh, team building and problem solving and leadership and uh, uh, motivation and desire to succeed. So um, 
I did a fair amount of research, and when I was at the Rockefeller Foundation before I became the CEO of the National Urban League, really immersed myself in immersed myself in these issues. Uh, uh, my spiritual guru and educational guru around these issues was the legendary Dr. James Comer, who was the founder of the School Development Program and who had preached the gospel of academic and social development his entire career. Uh, our daughter had attended one of the very first schools where we worked and we saw that uh, his his approach in action so i came to the league steeped in this subject had a very strong sense that the journey to the mainstream has to go through education um that there were many educational gaps afflicting um, our children, African-American children, and frankly, among some of the children, there was too much ambivalence about the importance of achievement. Um, so I felt that this was a, a defining issue for um, the African-American community. It should be a defining issue for uh, the Urban League, and it was going to be a defining issue of my tenure there. Um, the campaign for African-American achievement had several prongs. One was to celebrate achievement to get our young people turned on to the idea of achieving. And we did that by creating uh, um, an, an organization called the National Achiever Society. It was sort of our national achievement gang, and it was an idea that was derived from the remarkable work of Dr. Israel Tribble in uh, Florida, um, where we celebrated youngsters who had earned B averages or better in school. Um, and secondly, we wanted to uh, equip parents to be sophisticated and insistent consumers of their children's education so that they know what children need in order to succeed in school. They know how to um, participate with the educators in um, the, the academic success of their children and to provide the support at home. And thirdly, we wanted um, to create a strong consumer demand for uh, improved education um, in this country and in our communities. Uh, so those are the three prongs, and that was the thrust of the uh, campaign for African American achievement. One of the interesting things about the campaign is that it really was focused on communities and parents and even children trying to change the culture rather than sort of first wading directly into some of the more intense policy debates about what we should do about K-12 education. Well, it was a, it was a mobilization effort. Uh, we, we were trying to get the churches and the fraternities and the sororities to step up and get deeply engaged and to take responsibility for the education of their children so that it wasn't just a matter of parents bearing that responsibility, although they have primary responsibility, but we also felt that all of these other organizations could uh, play a significant significant role. And, um, you know, you never achieve exactly what you want to achieve uh, or at the scale you want to achieve it, but we were very excited about what we accomplished. Um, I will never forget an induction ceremony for the children in the National Achiever Society out in San Diego at a place called Bayview Baptist Church, a remarkable church out there. And um, the Urban League affiliate out there inducted 350 students into the Achiever Society. They had all obtained B averages or better in school. Half of them were boys, and there were about 1,800 well-wishers uh, in the church. Uh, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary event, and it just helped to transmit and reinforce that message about the importance of academic achievement. One noteworthy aspect of your work on education throughout your career has been a consistent emphasis on attending to the social and emotional development of youth 
in addition to their academic success. I think listeners can hear that as you're talking about the issue right now. I'm curious about the connection between those two issues. Is it from the military that we learn about the importance of social and emotional learning? Yeah, I think there's a lot we can learn from the military, and it's very funny. I never served. I never even uh, had a physical to serve. But I remember growing up in Washington, D.C., when some of my classmates who were really not into school and actually we considered them kind of knuckleheads and thugs would drop out of school, and I'd run into several of these guys a few years later, and they'd either joined the Army or been drafted, and they were ramrod straight in their uniforms and full of purpose. And I said, something has transformed them. I wonder what the military knows. And I got curious um, uh, about that question. And when I was with a consulting firm in New Haven, we had an opportunity to study it. And I discovered that the military places more emphasis on social and emotional development and probably spends more research on understanding it and addressing it than any other institution on earth, and certainly more than the schools, because in a sense they have such a, you know, the stakes are so high. They have to equip young people to deal not only with the cognitive functions that are essential, but also the teamwork functions that are essential to be successful uh, members of the military. Um, So when I was with this consulting firm, we came up with this idea of trying to create a what I call quasi-military youth corps for kids. It would be something sort of patterned after the military, but it would have all of the developmental supports that the military is known for. And that work uh, became what is now known as the National Guard Youth Challenge Program. Um, I presented that idea to the head of the National Guard, General Herb Temple, and he got very excited about it. It's very funny. I had about a half an hour presentation uh, where I was going to urge them to embrace this idea. And about 10 minutes into it, he said, Mr. Price, we get it. We'll do it. And I almost continued talking. Then I realized, you know, if you've made a sale, shut up. (laughs) We talk your way out of it. Um, But anyway, that conversation in uh, 1989 became the National Guard Youth Challenge Corps, which was launched in 1993. And more than 150,000 young people have graduated from the program. It operates in about 26 or 27 states, as well as Puerto Rico and elsewhere. Um, And there are eight core components of the challenge program which reflect the deep commitment to social-emotional development. I mean, one of the components is academic excellence and functional literacy, which we'd expect. Uh, Another is what might be called leadership and followership. And by followership, they mean developing the skills to be part of a team and understand that you aren't always the boss, um, that you may have customers, you may have uh, coworkers, that uh, you may have bosses that you have to um, work for and serve well. And uh, so you need those skills. Another component is responsible citizenship. The fourth component is community service. Yet another one is life coping skills and job skills and physical fitness and health and hygiene. So these are the eight co-equal components of the challenge program. And I, I wrote a book called Strugglers and Strivers in which I argued that one could imagine schools that, um, that would help address the needs of young people for whom school isn't quite working, life isn't quite working, and they need much more robust, in their, robust support in their social and emotional development. So you left the National Urban League in 2003, I believe, and 
have been following developments in education reform since that time. And looking back in the book, you're remarkably frank about what's been accomplished, both through your own efforts and those of the organizations you've been involved with, but also through the broader education reform movement of efforts to raise standards. You write that children already struggling in school are told to jump higher academically while educators thrash about for strategies and supports to enable them to do so. And you conclude that the education apartheid I witnessed in the mid 20th century persists and has probably worsened in the 21st. So is there any cause for hope as you look back and think about where we are now? Yeah, I think there's uh, much more attention to these issues. I think one of the interesting benefits of uh, No Child Left Behind was the, um, you know, the the data and the disaggregation of data which uh, was collected under that law and which uh, exposed, for better or for worse, how various categories of young people are doing in school so that they all aren't lumped into some, you know, large number which masks the reality of those youngsters. Um, I think that the focus on efforts to improve outcomes for children um, continues unabated. And I think we're we're beginning to realize that you just can't raise standards. You have to ask, what does it take in order to help young people perform at higher levels? What kind of teaching, what kind of curriculum, what kinds of supports? And one of the most exciting developments for me around uh, the importance of social-emotional development is the creation of the new uh, National Commission on Social-Emotional and Academic Development, which is co-chaired by Linda uh, Darling-Hammond, uh, of Stanford, um, by um, uh, Tim Shriver of Special Olympics, and by Governor John Engler. And there's, I'm, I'm privileged to serve on that commission. And um, it is a, in recognition of the fact that teachers are saying you can't get to higher levels of achievement for youngsters who are struggling in school without addressing their social and emotional needs. Uh, employers are telling us that um, Our employees need the social-emotional skills that enable them to be effective members of uh, teams. Um, And so I think there's a convergence of opinion about the importance of this issue and a recognition that schools have to concentrate on this issue and communities have to concentrate on this issue in order for youngsters who are struggling in school to have a better shot at succeeding. So I'm I'm optimistic, and and interestingly enough, uh, it may be that with the latest iteration of the federal education laws, that's going to relieve some of the testing pressure that's been on uh, the public schools, and will give them more latitude to do what they feel is necessary in the best interests of children. So this, you know, it it may well be that we're entering a period where schools have the latitude to and educators have the latitude to focus on the academic and social development of youngsters and not just have to obsess with, uh, be obsessed with tests. It's interesting you started your answer by referring to the positive legacy of No Child Left Behind with respect to providing information about achievement gaps based on tests. But, uh, and of course, organizations like the National Urban League, organizations including the National Urban League, played a key role in preserving the requirement that students be tested annually and that information on their performance be made available in a disaggregated way. 
in the Every Student Succeeds Act, even as that law hopefully struck a better balance in terms of giving educators the type of latitude that you just described that allows them to attend to well, students' Well, the issue isn't whether to test kids. It's whether to test them 15 to 20 times a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the issue is what do you do with the test results? Do you use the test results as a diagnostic device to help figure out where the young people are weak um, and where they need to be strengthened, or do you use it as a way to bludgeon um, schools and strengthen uh, uh, strip them of funding and strip them of the supports they need. So I think what happened is that we started obsessing with tests without understanding what to do with the information that the tests yielded. I remember some years ago going to a retreat with corporate leaders and governors, and there was a lot of macho chatter there about, you know, we're going we're gonna to increase the standards and test everybody and hold everybody accountable. And I remember asking rather innocently from the floor, said, I don't see anything on the agenda here about what it takes for kids to achieve at higher levels. And I was virtually ruled out of order. <laughs> but you can't you can't get to higher levels of performance without addressing what it takes to get to higher levels of performance. Um, and I think we're just turning our attention to that now. Well, our time is short, but I wonder if I could close by asking you a somewhat broader question. You've obviously had a remarkable career in which you've been able to be involved in, make a difference in American education in a variety of different roles. Looking back on it, what advice do you have for young Americans, regardless of race, who want to make a difference in the education offered to students most in need of support? Well, I think there are a number of ways in which young people can be engaged. I mean, obviously, going into the teaching and education professions, we need uh, all the highly motivated and skilled young people that we can uh, in order to uh, continue to uh, fortify the profession, and hopefully people will choose it as a profession and not as a way station. Um, secondly, I think there are tremendous opportunities for young for, for young people to be mentors of uh, children who need additional supports. I did that when I was in law school, and uh, the effects and the benefits were palpable. So I think we need to fortify the infrastructure, if you will, of mentors. Um, there are Wonderful mobilization efforts underway, uh, and uh, the one spawned by President Obama called My Brother's Keeper is uh, yet another example of an effort to get uh, civic and social groups and religious organizations to step up to the plate and do more to um, provide support for young people, to enrich their academic experiences, to broaden their horizons. And so I think there are ways in which young people who participate in organizations like that can be deeply engaged. And uh, lastly, I would say that this uh, new commission on, uh, well, it's not so new anymore, but the Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development will be issuing a, a, a clarion call to educators, to parents, to school boards, um, to place heightened emphasis on and to make social, emotional, and academic development the core co-equal function of uh, public education. And young people in various capacities, whether it's uh, serving on school boards or on city councils or in community organizations or in churches or uh, as educators, um, hopefully will will heed that clarion call from the commission and do whatever they can do, both in their immediate roles, 
but also in their roles as as uh, sophisticated advocates for the children to help say, this is the approach we need. Let's get on with it. Let's embrace the policies and practices that are required to ensure that children succeed. So I think there are all sorts of opportunities for um, young people to step up and step in. My guest today has been Hugh Price, former president of the National Urban League and the author of the new memoir, This African American Life. You can find an excerpt from his book at educationnext.org. Hugh, congratulations on the book and thanks for being part of the podcast. Hey, Marty, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.